chapter one part one of the mayflower and miscellaneous writings by harriet beecher stowe this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the mayflower and miscellaneous writings by harriet beecher stowe chapter one uncle lot part one and so i am to write a story but of what and where shall it be radiant with the sky of italy or eloquent with the beau ideal of greece shall it breathe odour and languor from the orient or chivalry from the occident or gaiety from france or vigour from england no no these are all too old too romance-like too obviously picturesque for me no let me turn to my own land my own new england the land of bright fires and strong hearts the land of deeds and not of words the land of fruits and not of flowers the land often spoken against yet always respected the latchet of whose shoes the nations of the earth are not worthy to unloose now from this very heroic apostrophe you may suppose that i have something very heroic to tell by no means it is merely a little introductory breeze of patriotism such as occasionally brushes over every mind bearing on its wings the remembrance of all we ever loved or cherished in the land of our early years and if it should seem to be rhodomontade to any people in other parts of the earth let them only imagine it to be said about old kentuck old england or any other corner of the world in which they happen to be born and they will find it quite rational but as touching our story it is time to begin did you ever see the little village of newbury in new england i dare say you never did for it was just one of those out-of-the-way places where nobody ever came unless they came on purpose a green little hollow wedged like a bird's nest between half a dozen high hills that kept off the wind and kept out foreigners so that the little place was as straightly sui generis as if there were not another in the world the inhabitants were all of that respectable old steadfast family who make it a point to be born bred married die and be buried all in the self-same spot there were just so many houses and just so many people lived in them and nobody ever seemed to be sick or to die either at least while i was there the natives grew old till they could not grow any older and then they stood still and lasted from generation to generation there was too an unchangeability about all the externals of newbury here was a red house and there was a brown house and across the way was a yellow house and there was a straggling rail fence or a tribe of mullen stalks between the minister lived here and squire moses lived there and deacon hart lived under the hill and messrs nadab and abihu peters lived by the cross-road and the old widder smith lived by the meeting-house and ebenezer camp kept a shoemaker's shop on one side and patience mosley kept a milliner's shop in front and there was old comfort scran who kept store for the whole town and sold axe-heads brass thimbles licorice ball fancy handkerchiefs and everything else you can think of 
here too was the general post-office where you might see letters marvellously folded directed wrong side upward stamped with a thimble and superscribed to some of the dollies or pollies or peters or moseses aforenamed or not named for the rest as to manners morals arts and sciences the people in newbury always went to their parties at three o'clock in the afternoon and came home before dark always stopped all work the minute the sun was down on saturday night always went to meeting on sunday had a schoolhouse with all the ordinary inconveniences were in neighbourly charity with each other read their bibles feared their god and were content with such things as they had the best philosophy after all such was the place into which master james benton made an eruption in the year eighteen hundred and no matter what now this james is to be our hero and he is just the hero for a sensation at least so you would have thought if you had been in newbury the week after his arrival master james was one of those whole-hearted energetic yankees who rise in the world as naturally as cork does in water he possessed a great share of that characteristic national trait so happily denominated cuteness which signifies an ability to do everything without trying and to know everything without learning and to make more use of one's ignorance than other people do of their knowledge this quality in james was mingled with an elasticity of animal spirits a buoyant cheerfulness of mind which though found in the new england character perhaps as often as anywhere else is not ordinarily regarded as one of its distinguishing traits as to the personal appearance of our hero we have not much to say of it not half so much as the girls in newbury found it necessary to remark the first sabbath that he shone out in the meeting-house there was a saucy frankness of countenance a knowing roguery of eye a joviality and prankishness of demeanour that was wonderfully captivating especially to the ladies it is true that master james had an uncommonly comfortable opinion of himself a full faith that there was nothing in creation that he could not learn and could not do and this faith was maintained with an abounding and triumphant joyfulness that fairly carried your sympathies along with him and made you feel quite as much delighted with his qualifications and prospects as he felt himself there are two kinds of self-sufficiency one is amusing and the other is provoking his was the amusing kind it seemed in truth to be only the buoyancy and overflow of a vivacious mind delighted with everything delightful in himself or others he was always ready to magnify his own praise but quite as ready to exalt his neighbour if the channel of discourse ran that way his own perfections being more completely within his knowledge he rejoiced in them more constantly but if those of any one else came within the same range he was quite as much astonished and edified as if they had been his own master james at the time of his transit to the town of newbury was only eighteen years of age so that it was difficult to say which predominated in him most the boy or the man 
the belief that he could and the determination that he would be something in the world had caused him to abandon his home and with all his worldly effects tied in a blue cotton pocket-handkerchief to proceed to seek his fortune in newbury and never did stranger in yankee village rise to promotion with more unparalleled rapidity or boast a greater plurality of employment he figured as schoolmaster all the week and as chorister on sundays and taught singing and reading in the evenings besides studying latin and greek with the minister nobody knew when thus fitting for college while he seemed to be doing everything else in the world besides james understood every art and craft of popularity and made himself mightily at home in all the chimney-corners of the region round about knew the geography of everybody's cider-barrel and apple-bin helping himself and every one else therefrom with all bountifulness rejoicing in the good things of this life devouring the old lady's doughnuts and pumpkin-pies with most flattering appetite and appearing equally to relish everybody and thing that came in his way the degree and versatility of his acquirements were truly wonderful he knew all about arithmetic and history and all about catching squirrels and planting corn made poetry and hoe handles with equal celerity wound yarn and took out grease spots for old ladies and made nosegays and knick-knacks for young ones caught trout saturday afternoons and discussed doctrines on sundays with equal adroitness and effect in short mr james moved on through the place victorious happy and glorious welcomed and privileged by everybody in every place and when he had told his last ghost story and fairly flourished himself out of doors at the close of a long winter's evening you might see the hard face of the good man of the house still phosphorescent with his departing radiance and hear him exclaim in a paroxysm of admiration that Jemison's talk really did beat all that he was certainly most a miraculous creature it was wonderfully contrary to the buoyant activity of master james's mind to keep a school he had moreover so much of the boy and the rogue in his composition that he could not be strict with the iniquities of the curly pates under his charge and when he saw how determinately every little heart was boiling over with mischief and motion he felt in his soul more disposed to join in and help them to a frolic than to lay justice to the line as was meet this would have made a sad case had it not been that the activity of the master's mind communicated itself to his charge just as the reaction of one brisk little spring will fill a manufactory with motion so that there was more of an impulse towards study in the golden good-natured day of james benton than in the time of all that went before or came after him but when school was out james's spirits foamed over as naturally as a tumbler of soda-water and he could jump over benches and burst out of doors with as much rapture as the veriest little elf in his company then you might have seen him stepping homeward with a most felicitous expression of countenance occasionally reaching his hand through the fence for a bunch of currants or over it after a flower or bursting into some back yard to help an old lady empty her wash-tub 
or stopping to pay his devoirs to aunt this or mistress that for james well knew the importance of the powers that be and always kept the sunny side of the old ladies we shall not answer for james's general flirtations which were sundry and manifold for he had just the kindly heart that fell in love with everything in feminine shape that came in his way and if he had not been blessed with an equal facility in falling out again we do not know whatever would have become of him but at length he came into an abiding captivity and it is quite time that he should for having devoted thus much space to the illustration of our hero it is fit we should do something in behalf of our heroine and therefore we must beg the reader's attention while we draw a diagram or two that will assist him in gaining a right idea of her do you see yonder brown house with its broad roof sloping almost to the ground on one side and a great unsupported sun-bonnet of a piazza shooting out over the front door you must often have noticed it you have seen its tall well sweep relieved against the clear evening sky or observed the feather-beds and bolsters lounging out of its chamber windows on a still summer morning you recollect its gate that swung with a chain and a great stone its pantry window latticed with little brown slabs and looking out upon a forest of bean-poles you remember the zephyrs that used to play among its pea-brush and shake the long tassels of its corn-patch and how vainly any zephyr might essay to perform similar flirtations with the considerate cabbages that were solemnly vegetating near by then there was the whole neighbourhood of purple-leaved beets and feathery parsnips there were the billows of gooseberry bushes rolled up by the fence interspersed with rows of quince trees and far off in one corner was one little patch penuriously devoted to ornament which flamed with marigolds poppies snappers and four o'clocks then there was a little box by itself with one rose geranium in it which seemed to look around the garden as much like a stranger as a french dancing-master in a yankee meeting-house that is the dwelling of uncle lot griswold uncle lot as he was commonly called had a character that a painter would sketch for its lights and contrasts rather than its symmetry he was a chestnut burr abounding with briars without and with substantial goodness within he had the strong-grained practical sense the calculating worldly wisdom of his class of people in new england he had too a kindly heart but all the strata of his character were crossed by a vein of surly petulance that half-way between joke and earnest coloured everything that he said and did if you asked a favour of uncle lot he generally kept you arguing half an hour to prove that you really needed it and to tell you that he could not all the while be troubled with helping one body or another all which time you might observe him regularly making his preparations to grant your request and see by an odd glimmer of his eye that he was preparing to let you hear the conclusion of the whole matter which was well well i guess i'll go on the hall i suppose i must at least so off he would go and work while the day lasted and then wind up with a farewell exhortation not to be a callin on your neighbours when you could get along without if any of uncle lot's neighbours were in any trouble he was always at hand to tell them that they shouldn't a done so 
that it was strange they couldn't had more sense and then to close his exhortations by labouring more diligently than any to bring them out of their difficulties groaning in spirit meanwhile that folks would make people so much trouble uncle lot father wants to know if you will lend him your hoe to-day says a little boy making his way across a cornfield why don't your father use his own hoe ours is broke broke how came it broke i broke it yesterday trying to hit a squirrel what business had you to be hitting squirrels with a hoe say but father wants to borrow yours why don't you have that mended it's a great pester to have everybody using a body's things well i can borrow one somewhere else i suppose says the suppliant after the boy has stumbled across the ploughed ground and is fairly over the fence uncle lot calls hallo there you little rascal what are you going off without the hoe for i didn't know as you meant to lend it i didn't say i wouldn't did i here come and take it stay i'll bring it and do tell your father not to be a lettin you hunt squirrels with his hoes next time uncle lot's household consisted of aunt sally his wife and an only son and daughter the former at the time our story begins was at a neighbouring literary institution aunt sally was precisely as clever as easy to be entreated and kindly in externals as her helpmate was the reverse she was one of those respectable pleasant old ladies whom you might often have met on the way to church on a sunday equipped with a great fan and a psalm-book and carrying some dried orange peel or a stalk of fennel to give to the children if they were sleepy in meeting she was as cheerful and domestic as the tea-kettle that sung by her kitchen fire and slipped along among uncle lot's angles and peculiarities as if there never was anything the matter in the world and the same mantle of sunshine seemed to have fallen on miss grace her only daughter pretty in her person and pleasant in her ways endowed with native self-possession and address lively and chatty having a mind and a will of her own yet good-humoured withal miss grace was a universal favourite it would have puzzled a city lady to understand how grace who never was out of newbury in her life knew the way to speak and act and behave on all occasions exactly as if she had been taught how she was just one of those wild flowers which you may sometimes see waving its little head in the woods and looking so civilized and garden-like that you wonder if it really did come up and grow there by nature she was an adept in all household concerns and there was something amazingly pretty in her energetic way of bustling about and putting things to rights like most yankee damsels she had a longing after the tree of knowledge and having exhausted the literary fountains of a district school she fell to reading whatsoever came in her way true she had but little to read but what she perused she had her own thoughts upon so that a person of information in talking with her would feel a constant wondering pleasure to find that she had so much more to say of this that and the other thing than he expected 
uncle lot like every one else felt the magical brightness of his daughter and was delighted with her praises as might be discerned by his often finding occasion to remark that he didn't see why the boys need to be all the time a-comin to see grace for she was nothin so extraordinary after all about all matters and things at home she generally had her own way while uncle lot would scold and give up with a regular good grace that was quite creditable father says grace i want to have a party next week you shan't go to havin your parties grace i always have to eat bits and ends a fortnight after you have one and i won't have it so and so uncle lot walked out and aunt sally and miss grace proceeded to make the cake and pies for the party when uncle lot came home he saw a long array of pies and rows of cakes on the kitchen table grace 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 i say what is all this here flummery for why it is to eat father said grace with a good-natured look of consciousness uncle lot tried his best to look sour but his visage began to wax comical as he looked at his married daughter so he said nothing but quietly sat down to his dinner father said grace after dinner we shall want two more candlesticks next week why can't you have your party with what you've got no father we want two more i can't afford it grace there's no sort of use aunt and you shan't have any oh father now do said grace i won't neither said uncle lot as he sallied out of the house and took the road to comfort scran's store in half an hour he returned again and fumbling in his pocket and drawing forth a candlestick levelled it at grace there's your candlestick but father i said i wanted two why can't you make one do no i can't i must have two well then there's t'other and here's a falderall for you to tie round your neck so saying he bolted for the door and took himself off with all speed it was much after this fashion that matters commonly went on in the brown house but having tarried long on the way we must proceed with the main story james thought miss grace was a glorious girl and as to what miss grace thought of master james perhaps it would not have been developed had she not been called to stand on the defensive for him with uncle lot for from the time that the whole village of newbury began to be wholly given unto the praise of master james uncle lot set his face as a flint against him from the laudable fear of following the multitude he therefore made conscience of stoutly gainsaying everything that was said in his behalf which as james was in high favour with aunt sally he had frequent opportunities to do so when miss grace perceived that uncle lot did not like our hero as much as he ought to do she of course was bound to like him well enough to make up for it certain it is that they were remarkably happy in finding opportunities of being acquainted that james waited on her as a matter of course from singing-school that he volunteered making a new box for her geranium on an improved plan and above all that he was remarkably particular in his attentions to aunt sally a stroke of policy which showed that james had a natural genius for this sort of matters 
even when emerging from the meeting-house in full glory with flute and psalm-book under his arm he would stop to ask her how she did and if it was cold weather he would carry her foot-stove all the way home from meeting discoursing upon the sermon and other serious matters as aunt sally observed in the pleasantest prettiest way that ever ye see this flute was one of the crying sins of james in the eyes of uncle lot james was particularly fond of it because he had learned to play on it by intuition and on the decease of the old pitch-pipe which was slain by a fall from the gallery he took the liberty to introduce the flute in its place for this and other sins and for the good reasons above named uncle lot's countenance was not towards james neither could he be moved to himward by any manner of means to all aunt sally's good words and kind speeches he had only to say that he didn't like him that he hated to see him a manifesting and glorifying there in the front gallery sundays and a acting everywhere as if he was master of all he didn't like it and he wouldn't but our hero was no whit cast down or discomfited by the malcontent aspect of uncle lot on the contrary when report was made to him of divers of his hard speeches he only shrugged his shoulders with a very satisfied air and remarked that he knew a thing or two for all that why james said his companion and chief counsellor do you think grace likes you i don't know said our hero with a comfortable appearance of certainty but you can't get her james if uncle lot is cross about it fudge i can make uncle lot like me if i have a mind to try well then jim you'll have to give up that flute of yours i tell you now fa so la i can make him like me and my flute too why how will you do it oh i'll work it said our hero well jim i tell you now you don't know uncle lot if you say so for he is just the saddest critter in his way that ever you saw i do know uncle lot though better than most folks he is no more cross than i am and as to his being set you have nothing to do but make him think he is in his own way when he is in yours that is all well said the other but you see i don't believe it and i'll bet you a grey squirrel that i'll go there this very evening and get him to like me and my flute both said james accordingly the late sunshine of that afternoon shone full on the yellow buttons of james as he proceeded to the place of conflict it was a bright beautiful evening a thunderstorm had just cleared away and the silver clouds lay rolled up in masses around the setting sun the raindrops were sparkling and winking to each other over the ends of the leaves and all the bluebirds and robins breaking forth into song made the little green valley as merry as a musical box james's soul was always overflowing with that kind of poetry which consists in feeling unspeakably happy and it is not to be wondered at considering where he was going that he should feel in a double ecstasy on the present occasion he stepped gaily along occasionally springing over a fence to the right to see whether the rain had swollen the trout brook or to the left to notice the ripening of mr somebody's watermelons for james always had an eye on all his neighbours matters as well as his own in this way he proceeded till he arrived at the picket fence that marked the commencement of uncle lot's ground here he stopped to consider 
just then four or five sheep walked up and began also to consider a loose picket which was hanging just ready to drop off and james began to look at the sheep well mister said he as he observed the leader judiciously drawing himself through the gap in with you just what i wanted and having waited a moment to ascertain that all the company were likely to follow he ran with all haste towards the house and swinging open the gate pressed all breathless to the door uncle lot there are four or five sheep in your garden uncle lot dropped his whetstone and scythe i'll drive them out said our hero and with that he ran down the garden alley and made a furious descent on the enemy bestirring himself as bunyan says lustily and with good courage till every sheep had skipped out much quicker than it skipped in and then springing over the fence he seized a great stone and nailed on the picket so effectually that no sheep could possibly encourage the hope of getting in again this was all the work of a minute and he was back again but so exceedingly out of breath that it was necessary for him to stop a moment and rest himself uncle lot looked ungraciously satisfied what under the canopy set you to scampering so said he i could a driv out them critters myself if you are at all particular about driving them out yourself i can let them in again said james uncle lot looked at him with an odd sort of twinkle in the corner of his eye s'pose i must ask you to walk in said he much obliged said james but i am in a great hurry so saying he started in very business-like fashion towards the gate you'd better just stop a minute can't stay a minute i don't see what possesses you to be all the while in sich a hurry a body would think you had all creation on your shoulders just my situation uncle lot said james swinging open the gate well at any rate have a drink of cider can't ye said uncle lot who was now quite engaged to have his own way in the case james found it convenient to accept this invitation and uncle lot was twice as good-natured as if he had stayed in the first of the matter once fairly forced into the premises james thought fit to forget his long walk and excess of business especially as about that moment aunt sally and miss grace returned from an afternoon call you may be sure that the last thing these respectable ladies looked for was to find uncle lot and master james tete-a-tete over a pitcher of cider and when as they entered our hero looked up with something of a mischievous air miss grace in particular was so puzzled that it took her at least a quarter of an hour to untie her bonnet strings but james stayed and acted the agreeable to perfection first he must needs go down into the garden to look at uncle lot's wonderful cabbages and then he promenaded all around the corn patch stopping every few moments and looking up with an appearance of great gratification as if he had never seen such corn in his life and then he examined uncle lot's favourite apple-tree with an expression of wonderful interest i never he broke forth having stationed himself against the fence opposite to it what kind of an apple-tree is that it's a bell-flower or something another said uncle lot why where did you get it i never saw such apples said our hero with his eyes still fixed on the tree 
uncle lot pulled up a stalk or two of weeds and threw them over the fence just to show that he did not care anything about the matter and then he came up and stood by james nothing so remarkable as i know on said he just then grace came to say that supper was ready once seated at table it was astonishing to see the perfect and smiling assurance with which our hero continued his addresses to uncle lot it sometimes goes a great way towards making people like us to take it for granted that they do already and upon this principle james proceeded he talked laughed told stories and joked with the most fearless assurance occasionally seconding his words by looking uncle lot in the face with a countenance so full of good will as would have melted any snowdrift of prejudices in the world james also had one natural accomplishment more courtier-like than all the diplomacy in europe and that was the gift of feeling a real interest for anybody in five minutes so that if he began to please in jest he generally ended in earnest with great simplicity of mind he had a natural tact for seeing into others and watched their motions with the same delight with which a child gazes at the wheels and springs of a watch to see what it will do the rough exterior and latent kindness of uncle lot were quite a spirit-stirring study and when tea was over as he and grace happened to be standing together in the front door he broke forth i do really like your father grace do you said grace yes i do he has something in him and i like him all the better for having to fish it out well i hope you will make him like you said grace unconsciously and then she stopped and looked a little ashamed james was too well bred to see this or look as if grace meant any more than she said a kind of breeding not always attendant on more fashionable polish so he only answered i think i shall grace though i doubt whether i can get him to own it he is the kindest man that ever was said grace and he always acts as if he was ashamed of it james turned a little away and looked at the bright evening sky which was glowing like a calm golden sea and over it was the silver new moon with one little star to hold the candle for her he shook some bright drops off from a rose-bush near by and watched to see them shine as they fell while grace stood very quietly waiting for him to speak again grace said he at last i am going to college this fall so you told me yesterday said grace james stooped down over grace's geranium and began to busy himself with pulling off all the dead leaves remarking in the meanwhile and if i do get him to like me grace will you like me too i like you now very well said grace come grace you know what i mean said james looking steadfastly at the top of the apple tree well i wish then you would understand what i mean without my saying any more about it said grace oh to be sure i will said our hero looking up with a very intelligent air and so as aunt sally would say the matter was settled with no words about it end of chapter one part one